This is Swabside Chats. A podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss an American utopia, dual power, and the universal army by Frederick Jameson. Uh, so tonight, we're talking about a figure that is kind of, at least in, like... Western American academia, kind of like the main like academic Marxist, you know, the one who is like engaging in Marxist analysis within the academy, and it's probably the dude who's best known for it. But for some reason, I don't think any of us have really engaged with his work before. Is that is that fair? No, that's true. I've read snippets of postmodernism, but other than that, really not much. Yeah, and that's kind of his best known book too. Um, that came out a couple of years after Harvey's book on the subject. I think it was called The Condition of Postmodernity. Um, I think Harvey's book did better than his, but they both did fairly well for them um, because it was a subject that people, a lot of people were really interested in, you know, kind of following. Um, who, who coined the term postmodernism, actually? Let me see. Let me, if I can look this no, up real Jesus quick. Christ, I don't know. I think it was, I think it was Leotard, but I could be wrong. Leotard is responsible for incredulity towards meta narratives, which is yeah. often, which is often bandied about as the way of describing postmodernism. But I don't know if the term himself is his. The term itself is his. Yeah, like I've been, and I've encountered like some of his books, and I tried to skim through them. Um, but his stuff always struck me as a little, a little abstruse and kind of just outside the purview of what I'm really interested in. Uh, from like Mark. No, Jameson, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because um, he basically writes Marxism as a literary critic. Um, right. Yeah, that's the experience I had with him, too. And it's that kind of, quote, lit crit, quote, Marxism that, you know, I was exposed to as a sort of, like, I don't know, substitution for radical theory. And it seemed in, in line with the, quote, postmodern interest in replacing reality with books and texts. Um, that I'm not fond of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that that's, I guess, the the in that allowed Marxists to have, like, a, a foothold in English departments, I guess. Right. That's kind of where they held on as, like, you know, the Soviet Union went into decline and, like, neoliberalism was, like, ascendant. They could basically hang on because they, they basically, they hang on doing the thing that, Marxism is well capable of doing it. I think, I think, I think Marxist analysis often produces some of the most interesting, like cultural analysis. But it's probably the least interesting thing you could do with Marxism, right? Uh, yeah, um, it's certainly the least like uh, revolutionary thing you can do. Yeah, is well, but it's also in a way the most accessible. Like, um, who doesn't like to sit around and sort of talk about things that in culture that sort of say something about society to them? This says a lot about society. Right. I mean, who doesn't love reading Huffington Post articles about, like, cool video games, but from a Marxist analysis, who doesn't love that? 
I mean, um, is any of that in, in? I mean, I guess you could say like cultural Marxism, yeah, you know, with the brackets or whatever. But I don't yeah. think that gets into yeah. HuffPost. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's there's definitely three parentheses around that Marxism. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, nah, it, it. I don't know. I never really found uh, cultural analysis to be the most engaging form of Marxism either. And um, yeah, I mean, it, to be fair, I mean, like he seems kind of like. A lot of people in who are, you know, at least went to college where for many people, you know, art fucks and stuff come to Marxism. Um, he's a part of the tradition of people who come to Marxism, not necessarily because they feel like they're being exploited uh, in their day to day lives, uh, but more because they see capitalism destroying the things that they care about. Right. Right. And so they see like Marxist analysis as a way to explain that you know I, th- I think that's kind of how you know like sort of guy debord ends up in marxism right people like that um and so i think i think jameson falls into that camp according to according to his wikipedia page he came to marxism through by way of sartre um and then okay went, that checks out yeah and then went into literary marxist literary theory um and you know studying the frankfurt school and all that shit um and then basically became kind of became the American academic who was focused on that. He published like the political unconscious narrative is socially symbolic act talking about like historicization in order to understand literary texts. Um, so there's that. Uh, then the post, the postmodernist, the, the studies in postmodernism. I've heard him talk about this elsewhere and he kind of made it sound like it came out of his interest in architecture and kind of like he saw like the destruction of like um, the modernist like apartment housing complex in St. Louis as like this like world historical moment um, and the way that like like the kind of you know public housing and kind of like more egalitarian but less orna- ornate forms of construction and architecture are being replaced by you know Frank Gehry style shit right right yeah, I, this is actually sort of the dominant like tendency by which I've known people to get into Marxism, sort of art fucks, that understanding like the grand sweep of things are trying to be sort of on the side of good. You might say that's incredibly crude, but like if it makes me wonder, like someone was there ever anyone in a literature department that just like tried to read really broadly. And, and, you know, got nauseous over the same things that Marxists get nauseous over about, you know, like, is that like, is that a thing that happens, like, in the same way that it happens with like artists? <sighs> because like, I, I mean, I had all these interests before I ever like got into like playing music or something, but broadly speaking, thinking a lot about like how music functions on a market is enough to drive someone towards some form of anti-capitalism if not marxism right yeah i mean i guess i guess for me it was a little of both you know because like basically like coming from working class background like i was kind of like a little art fuck kid or whatever but i was also kind of like and they both explained like why what I, what I was discontented about like in art but also like why we don't have as much money as like a, other people i know <laughs> right? yeah no that's fair <laughs> yeah i mean and like marxism itself has always had i mean you know, the big reason, uh, like Marx basically seemed like he wanted to get into the academy or get into like an academic work, but didn't. And Marxism, for the most part, has existed kind of um, around 
the academic world but not in it right a lot of a lot of marx's work is published you know uh, it's auto, or it's autodidactic, or it's self-published, or it's published in places that I mean, historically, obviously, in the midst of struggle. But I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm thinking more like in the late 20th century, early 21st. You know, you have figures like like Lauren Goldner, or you know, um, just any of those, any of those kind of people, where it's they they'll usually have some semi like or Andrew Kleiman, who is an economics professor, but I doubt is like teaching like proper Marxist theory, you know, whatever college he's teaching at, right? No, he's at he's at Pace University. He's teaching fairly common bourgeois economics. Um, yeah, and he Andrew Kleiman actually explicitly theorizes this autonomous intellectual zone as like what's necessary as a sort of like Marxist humanist like solution to the think tank, right? So, so yeah. It's fairly clear. I know. I guess in the in the same period as Jameson, you also had people like you know uh, Robert Brenner and that whole school who were doing proper like Marxist work and like history and stuff like that. <clears throat> but for the most part, it's you know it's kind of an anomaly. Um, so somebody somebody who who works in that vein is kind of there's something interesting about that um, and how they sort of navigate that. And I think you can see that in his work a little bit, where I feel like he's kind of swallowed some of. Baudrillard stuff a little bit in a way that maybe undermines his own analysis, uh, but maybe we can maybe get into that as we go along. So the piece we read today um, was an American Utopia. It was published, I believe, in 2016. Um, and how would we describe this piece exactly? It's a good question. Broad, broadly speaking, what is, what is this? <sighs> It's a provocative essay, right? Like a sort of polemical vision. On its face, yeah, I would say, yeah, it's a polemical essay. It would be utopian essay, but when you dig a little bit deeper and you look into some, like, background information, it, it... it's basically just an ex it's meant to be an exploration of the utopian uh utopian genre of fiction that's what it's that's what it oh sorry uh, uh, that's what it's fundamentally aimed as and honestly it shouldn't be that surprising given that you know what is jameson what is Jameson's role, you know, what is Jameson's career? It's that of an academic, a cri- an academic and a literary critic. So. <sighs> well, far be it for me to, like, say that lit crit people aren't treating the world like a bunch of texts, but I think Jameson, out of any of them, is actually sort of using the the fictive stuff, like the comments about fiction and utopia, anti-utopian in, in fiction, as like a, as a springboard, or attempting to use it as a springboard for like, I don't want to say practical political thinking, because he makes a distinction, but for like the political consciousness of an era. Like, that's kind of what I get out of the little snippets I half read high at three in the morning of uh, postmodernism that, you know, he has this concept of cognitive mapping that you do through culture. And I think that's the way that he's interested in it. I don't think he's fundamentally interested only in literature, even though, you know, one could read this essay and I think 
be like, oh, yeah, this just descends into fucking literature and psychoanalysis, of course. Like, well, I think, I think, okay, so he, I think he's grappling with a kind of a problematic where, you know, he has these kind of, it, it, it's something, it's something we all kind of deal with where, you know, there's this gap between, you know, where things, where, how we want things to be and how things are, right? And a lot, a lot of, Marx's thought has been, especially, you know, following, like, from the late 19th century onward is really focused on the question of transition, right? Uh, mostly because there was sort of mass working class movements, and the idea was, how do we get how do we get there? And that's where a lot of the focus is. This kind of dispenses with that completely, and it recognizes that there's this huge gap between what he's proposing and... You know what, they, where things actually are, or what could possibly bring something into existence. Like, I don't know if it, I mean, in some ways, yes, it is a like a, it is couched in like literary terms. But I, I mean, just reading it, I don't know if it's like, I don't think it's a purely literary. I mean, it's a purely literary exercise in the sense that n- nothing's really going to come of it. But I think he is trying to sort of provoke his audience into thinking, thinking about thinking beyond capitalism, right? Because another thing. Maybe one of the quotes like Frederick Jameson is most famous for, and but that he say, attributes from to somewhere else. I he never I don't know if he cites where exactly is that. Nobody fucking knows where it came from. I think he just made it up. Uh, but any, I believe it was Mark Fisher and uh, Frederick Jameson saying it at the same time while watching The Matrix. <laughs> but the idea is it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, right? And so here he's basically trying to like imagine the end of capitalism <laughs> that is to say the creation of something else and in in the um little outro little epilogue he writes at the end he well, i should say early, okay so earlier in the essay he basically talks about the central idea that this whole thing is based around because it's called american utopianism the universal army and i guess it came to him he's talked about how Truman ran on this platform of basically Medicare for all or universal health care on the on the British model, lost, and then you had FD, you had um, Eisenhower who's made this, at one point apparently said, you know, well if people want if Americans want universal health care they can join the army, and so what he takes from this is, um, yeah, we'll just let's expand the army to basically include the entire adult population. Um. But in so, but, and we we'll, we can get into that a little later. Uh, but to finish the point in the outro, he basically frames what he did this way: "Quote, the paper under discussion here is in fact a kind of shell game, in which, when you think you're really talking about the armed forces, you're in reality talking about utopia, and when you think you're talking about revolution, you're talk you are deep into the future talking about the problems of socialism itself." It is as though Jonathan Swift were to complain that the horrors of the potato famine could have been avoided had people only taken his modest proposal to heart. Or perhaps we might prefer a somewhat modified Eisenhower cartoon in which the military leader now observes, well, if they don't want to join the army, let them form a political party instead. Only there is no one there to add, as I did. (laughs) Yeah, so I think part of the Swiftian kind of thing in the proposal here is that what leftists what marxists would say anything like join the army in the year of our lord right mm-hmm. like uh but he's not saying join the army no 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 he's he's explicitly not saying join the army 
he he even counterposes later in the essay his universal army to you know the actual u.s armed forces <laughs> like so he's not saying that but he's clearly <laughs> you know he's he's flirting with a, a sort of militarism and mm-hmm. like i mean more than flirting right like basically the universal army which is it should be said it's it's conceptualized in a sort of he- classical hegelian marxist way where there's like a a social organization that renders the political and government, you know, all that, the entire sphere, that's all obsolete now because um, we have this, you know, universal sort of social administration underneath it that, that can allow the rest of it to wither away. It's an integrative kind of institution. Well, he imagines it actually, what he imagines it though as, as, as a form of dual power. And, he he arrives at that because he basically goes through all the potential things that could be dual power. He's like unions probably can't they maybe they could be dual power, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Um, you know, and he just he kind of runs the gamut, and then he but then the army is kind of the last one that he arrives at, and he claims it can be a form of dual power because it basically it's an exception to a lot. Its form and structure is exceptional to a lot of what's in the constitution, so. If you basically drafted everybody immediately into the military, it would form a kind of state in and outside the state, and then you would basically expand. You know, the the healthcare system that exists for vets would basically apply to everybody, and then um, you obviously everybody couldn't serve on the front. Uh, there would, even there would be fronts anywhere, so you'd, you'd have to find other stuff for them to do as a part of that. And, and you know, if such a thing would be so unruly, you couldn't ship the entire population of the country to invade another country. Um, and so it sort of goes, it's it's basically stretching, like using this institution and then stretching it into something far beyond what it's... Uh, but what's, one thing that is interesting he does point out is how, he just talking about how the the professionalization of the army has certain man work to serve like super reactionary ends and for and from a practical standpoint and if you were to build like an actual you know political program i mean i think most marxists would basically instead call for the abolition of the army and, and its replacement with a popular militia but there would be some aspect of some kind of like universal conscription um i mean as go on uh- August Bebel like makes the argument for like universal conscript uh, universal conscription in the art into like an army as like the minimum program demand I think I can't remember but yeah universal conscription has actually been like a traditional Marxist demand demand in the past generally because of like the anti-war element like if you have it's hard to like get people behind a war if you have them all in the military you know and that sort of thing and well that that's the good reason that marxists have proposed this the the bad reason which you know jameson does touch on is the the nation building sort of nationalist like reason <laughs> um and i put this what I guess what what Jameson is getting at as in, in this like dual power scenario. Yeah, it's 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 actually really common in old marxism. It's a civic republican notion that you know there's no no rights without duties essentially. Um I mean you can see this 
in, you know, when the, the, I think it was Lenin or one of the Bolsheviks that quotes, uh, the gospel of John or Paul or some shit, you know, when, you know, if people don't work, they don't eat, you know, or if, uh, or even in the K, uh, the, the fucking, the weirdo, like hipster, uh, left communist, uh, German communist party, the KAPD, they had a, they had, you know, obligation to work as part of their program, you know, like there, there's, there's always this like sort of civic Republican, um, you know, universal conscription element to Marxism. Um, yeah, it reminds me of uh, Starship Troopers, the novel, not the yeah. movie. <laughs> uh, where oh, that that's beautiful. <laughs> where specifically, like, there's there's like there's like many speeches in um, in Robert Heinlein's uh, Starship Troopers, but there's like one from like the high school teacher that's meant to be like against you know socialism, you know it's like. He talks about giving them a reward, giving everyone a reward or something dumb like that. Just giving them a reward and them not earning it. And, you know, that earning, not earning it is fundamentally a bad thing because, like, it robs the reward of its meaning and that sort of thing. And basically, he compares that reward to, like, voting and, like, all that in society. And that's why in Robert Heinlein's, you know, Starship Troopers universe, everyone has to serve in the military. Not necessarily in the armed forces, but in the military in order to, like, vote and be a full citizen. And, you know, socialism is bad because it's just giving people stuff, which is, like... You know, if you, if you, Americans don't really pay attention to what's actually a part of even actually existing socialism. Um. So maybe one caveat here is like, whether or not this is like a purely, you know, literary document or whatever, I feel like for the purpose of talking about, we kind of have to take it at face value. Um, But I think what is kind of interesting is this is kind of, I think it also does say something about the kind of uh, troop worship that we sort of exist amidst where I think a lot of the way like in the popular imagination that we sort of conceptualize the troops is sort of tied to like World War II and like actual conscription armies and I he tries to basically like kind of like trace out what he sees as like the utopian element in this where you know in the military in a universal conscription army, you have people from different classes and backgrounds all basically intermingling and working alongside one another towards like a common goal in, you know, a way where you'll be, you know, f- with people from different like races and classes in a, you know, horizontal, horizontally, even though there's like vertical. But of course, that sort of ignores the way that like there's a fast track to the officers, cla- you know, the officer positions for yeah. people who come from backgrounds and means and shit like that. But you like can that. see where but, he's coming from. Like, right. And he even, ah, uh, he even makes like the sort of gesture towards American public institutions before saying, yes, but they're underfunded and therefore terrible. Um, but, you know, look at Cuba for good socialist health care or something, and then you can catch my drift. Right. Some, something that really, yeah, I'm sorry. Sounds like you're about to make a tangential. I was going to say, well, I was going to say, yeah, he talks about the post office at one point. Uh, right. Ah, oh, the post office. Um, yeah. He gives a nice peon to the post office, like a pan. I don't know how to pronounce that word. He gives a nice ode to the post office as a, um, 
that could double as a Marxist ode to like the post office and the tradition of the state and revolution, mm-hmm. or it can be, you know, thinking about where, where does this guy teach, you know, like at a uh, Duke, um, Duke university. So, you know, like there's, there's a, a long sort of tradition of sort of, uh, being like, uh, there's a, there's a good American liberal tradition of, upholding the post office as something that's like as an American socialized institution and socialized in scare quotes but let's roll with that right like um, you know it predates the constitution it's in the constitution and it's a you know national monopoly essentially it always has been and like I mean I guess it's not really anymore but you know like it's it's uh, been around and it's the major public option um, right. Well, there's a point I know. Th- uh, he also basically did a lecture um, about this, where he kind of recapitulates like the main points. I think at one point in the, during the lecture, he even like as like as an aside, kind of says, you know, like the way that the postman like travels like on yeah. foot through like capitalist urban space has like this kind of like positive social function. <laughs> it mints money in the form of stamps. It used to be an important source of employment, particularly for those seeking to drop out of the system as inconspicuously as possible, and generally on foot. It offers a unique experience of nature as well as of urban space, and an equally unique relationship to the community where that still exists. Yeah, the, that, it was like a laugh line for the audience, but I didn't think that that's how he meant it. I think he was quite sincere about his, like... Well, the whole thing—the whole thing is loaded with that. Like, there's yeah. there's all this stuff that like elicits these like guffaws and like laughs from the audience. Um, but I, you get the sense that he's basically being mostly pretty serious. Yeah, yeah. You know that thing about the post office highlights to me the thing I find most frustrating about Jameson, but also what I liked that he was so clear about is. It's the problem in Marxism where because you're opposed to the market and you want like a different kind of society, you're stuck looking at the existing state and going like, okay, how do I do that? But like different, like, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, all throughout this essay, the sort of like rebooted civic republicanism that he explicitly roots in the nationalist project and then kind of moves on from being like yeah we can see that but okay let's move on you know it's like he doesn't really dwell on that which i thought was you know might be worth kind of digging into that Mm -hmm. um and you know then also with his (laughs) with his um ode to nationalization (laughs) now i'm not like necessarily opposed to nationalizations you know what i mean but um it's you know the way that he inveys that this is like a singular singularly important political task to like re- reestablish that nationalization is an option in, in this and that scenario. Um, it just sort of speaks to this like sort of Lasallian Hegelian, like, like radical left Hegelian and then Lasallian bait and switch, you know, one moment he's saying that, you know, we need the state needs to wither away. All States are failed States. Nobody even fucking wants a government. The next moment he kind of is talking about this like universal army thing and nationalizing stuff, which, you know, again, as far as like, as far as it goes, like 
He's very explicit. This isn't just some kind of like grafted on political like uh, band-aid. This is, you know, a fundamental revolutionary like emergence of something, you know, like this is a this is the social organ that would provide. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's I think that's kind of the incoherence where he's like absorbed this kind of like Baudrillardian view that everything is collapsed. There's no state, man. There's no P. And that's the thing, too. He even goes and <laughs> like like the the big the big problem with this is like. You know, the reason that it's purely like a speculative utopia is because he doesn't really have any subject that could bring it into existence. Like he doesn't really even he almost explicitly says he didn't even believe in the proletariat. Like it's just, you know, there's just like this mass that is like an other and it get like it right, gets right, into the right. problem of the capital O other. Um, right. Which is when he slides into Lacani's. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's. Yeah, there, there's that there's that tension in his work, and I think you know you hear about that like I've seen like in reviews of like his his book on postmodernism, how you know he says he's sort of like practicing this kind of like a Galian like imminent critique of like postmodernism or whatever, um, but it it ended up being written such that you could read it both you could, you could read it both ways, right? Like you could read like postmodernism as like this Marxist critique of it, or you could that read it as like this internalization. And that was so much the case that like he ended up having like this huge influence in China, like on his study on postmodernism, but it ended up being used by the Chinese to justify the, the sort of like neoliberal turn in like Chinese right. culture. <laughs> right. Jesus. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So, so he ended up being like this huge, yeah, like this huge intellectual figure there. Um, but maybe in, the, in like the exact opposite way that he intended. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of a fundamental problem that I have with, with the way Slavoj Žižek, uh, other critical theorists, modern critical theorists like Slavoj Žižek, interact with you know communism and like the legacy of it as a whole. Like they can never genuinely engage with it on a meaningful level that isn't like tongue-in-cheek irony or, or some kind of distancing from it. You know, Jameson cannot, you know, just give us communist starship troopers because on a fundamental level he doesn't believe that utopia is something that's possible. I, that's, that having a modern utopia, even on the level of, like, you know, just literary fiction... You know, I mean, fiction is po fundamentally possible in this day and age. So when he wrote this, he was entering into his 80s, right? I do kind of find it fascinating that he, because, yeah, he's like 85 now. He's old. Well, that's pretty impressive, you know, to have yeah, like, yeah. this much of a grip at that age. like. Yeah, well, and what's interesting is, like, I think he, I mean, again, like, I, I don't know. I don't know how ironic this is. I feel like he's basically bringing all of the tools that he's developed intellectually to bear to try and answer kind of like what needs to happen right and this is like the best he can do like this is what he kind of like it's and it, it again it's kind of sort of like it's not that dissimilar from what paul cockshot was doing but with a different set of like intellectual tools right like i i, I can appreciate what you're saying jake but uh yeah i obviously i think you know, given our intellectual um, interests here, we're probably more likely to think that, you know, cockshots tools are more relevant um, to the job, even if um, 
Jameson, I think, is explicitly trying to point the way forward, if not actually for society literally, then for the way people write utopias literally. So that's the thing that I think Rose is spot on about, is that in terms of this essay's practical value, it is of practical value for like if if you're writing utopia, like how to think about utopia. Um, And he proposes that it would be a sort of therapy for anti-utopia, which I find very... I find that really, I actually, I, that was my favorite section of this, which is maybe a condemnation, but, you know, like, when he's talking about, you know, utopia as therapy for these fears, it really made sense to me, and it kind of got me reflecting on why I felt like I didn't need to watch Black Mirror, even though I know it's a well-executed show. Everyone knows it's a well-executed show. Like... But, you know, I just sort of resented it as a cultural phenomenon, not because it's going to take my future away from me. You know what I mean? I don't have, uh, I imagine capitalism to evolve in that direction, right? Like, <laughs> if uh, un- unimpeded, you know, it's going to do some horrible shit. Like, it's going to be unimaginably horrible and manipulative in ways we can't quite, you know, get to. And that's, you know, maybe some of our like some really great, you know, creative, like talent letting loose and, and, you know, figuring out those deep pathologies to our psyche or those deep, I don't know. I don't want to call them pathologies. Those deep demons lurking in our, in our wildest hopes. Right. And so I kind of felt like to engage with that would be to like, give yourself a sort of like nightmare fuel. If you're, you know, if you're someone that's like uh, trying to imagine a better world and you're trying to not close the casket on the possibilities of not just like the world, but your own life, <laughs> like that's maybe a bad button to hit. And so where Jameson is like asking us to, you know, kind of engage with utopia therapeutically, I think he's kind of right about why people do utopian shit. And that's like, not necessarily it's it's not my shit to be utopian but without it it's hard to get people to do scientific socialism to to give a shit if if you know those horizons are so crushed and learning that he's an you know an older person makes it all the more like obvious to me why it seemed like he was writing from a sort of previous perspective or something, or something that I thought, you know, a moment that I thought had passed or something. Like, you know, he he makes a note of Rumsfeld, and he's snarky about it, and he's talking about what would be called neoliberalism, you know what I mean? He's kind of harping on about that, um, the Reagan and Thatcher turn. Like, these, these are all things that I associate, you know, with uh, occupying the, and, you know, <laughs> like the a sort of left gone by <laughs> by now. Um... But I don't know. I appreciated that part probably the most, as um, I thought that was the thing that he was most insightful about. And uh, but not to say I hate the rest. I'm interested in the rest. I feel like we should talk about it at first on its face. You know, just interpreting it on face value, because I'm just gonna get like angry towards like 
the end. Be- I, I I get the feeling of like a David Foster Wallace, you know, just just to bring it to like literary, like the way David Foster Wallace talks about sincerity, you know, the you know whole new sincerity movement thing that happened briefly, ever so briefly in the '90s, you know, and his writing overall is this desire for some kind of sincerity this desire for like you know to talk openly about things in a manner that suggests hope and optimism and all that you know that shit and then you always have it come back to like sort of like irony hiding it's you know just relying constantly i on irony and obscuritanism to convey that hope is, is you know it, it's something within David Foster's Wallace's work that's ultimately frustrating is on the one hand you have this this guy who talks about empathy that sort of thing and on the other hand you have like these thick tone the, you know, infinite jest, this thick, insufferable tone filled with tongue-in-cheek irony, fucking footnotes that are seven pages long, is just to convey the life of a rich kid who has a hard time. It just feels something is deeply disingenuous and then you find out that David Foster Wallace as a person was a generally awful human being and it just it's like icing on the cake in terms of like dealing with that sort of thing that that I I got the same feeling as from this that I do from David Foster Wallace is you know initially I'm drawn into it because we're looking for that kind of sincerity we're looking for that kind of like glimmer of hope some kind of optimism maybe something of a better world and then you're just lured in and the more you read the more you slowly it dawns upon you or someone else you know just tells you hey this was meant to be ironic and this was meant to be ironic and you know there's ultimately they can't get past you know sort of like I hate to throw out the phrase capitalist realism because honestly yeah they can't get past capitalist realism as much as they bring it up or whatever it's just and it ends up being instead of uh david foster wallace where it just ends up being like this pretentious mess of like you know that has come to define literary fiction as a genre and it is a genre at this point because it's filled with certain kind of tropes that you can easily find but it's like the peak of literary fiction as a genre infinite jest for all the wrong reasons this is the peak of critical theory for all the wrong reasons and i guess i don't know i don't know if that was just a weird tangent or not but whatever i mean i don't think i i mean i i don't know how ironic this i mean i think maybe there's he is talking i mean that's his field he's talking about literary shit right and the how how utopia functions from a literary standpoint but i don't i don't know if the whole thing is just like one big like in quotation marks you know what i'm saying like i think that he he recognizes like you know how utopia is something that 
it, it is utopia pr- precisely because he, he doesn't have the social forces to bring it into realization in the you know visible future right and he's any any utopian thing that you draw up is often going to be colored by your own like personal pre- like prejudices and what you think would the you know the best kind of world would be and shit like that right? it's not detached from like the real movement and what we might say um so yeah and that sounds like all utopias are kind of literary from a certain standpoint um and i, I think that that gap the, the middle ground between a and b is basically the political question which he just kind of refuses 100 percent to engage with for his own sort of particular theoretical reasons um because then he would kind of have to he would have to imagine you know how we would get there from here but he, even in his own utopia he still kind of does that like i don't think his selection of the military as the vehicle with which to develop dual power w- is based on just complete pure speculation i think he thinks there i think he actually thinks sees thinks he sees something in there that's that's potentially feasible i agree with that but uh, just to briefly respond to rose's point before getting on to yours um it reminds me of something that Baudrillard said in The Divine Left, which I'm not totally comfortable with, but it's something that just really resonates with me, is that, you know, you you fight evil with truth and sincerity and democracy and honesty and rights. But to fight good, you know, the same, like, open-hearted humanist weapons don't necessarily work when, you know, the face of capitalism is, you know, shiny and soft and it is not you know, the jackboot that, or it's, or it's a, some kind of like some kind of photoshopped thing over a jackboot that you can't always see it or whatever. Anyway, the point being that like some level of irony is built in to anything that we, to any challenge that we'll actually be able to make. And I think Baudrillard takes that to an extreme and is a nihilist, obviously. So, you know, would say something like that. But um, what Jameson is saying is that and all of our utopias from this point forward have to have the awareness of the anti-utopian and dystopian impulses that are, you know, that basically just litter our psyches. That if we, if we ever see you know, a utopian horizon again, it will be a, a very anxiously self-aware one, a tremendously complicated one. Um, and so I think that's what informs his turn towards the fucking military and his quotation of terrorism and communism by Trotsky, right? Which is the sort of like apex of his doubling down on maybe a lot of the worst parts of the Bolsheviks and kind of like not the thing that Jameson wants to bring out about the universal army, you know, like it's sort of, a, there is a trollish thing that he's doing by citing Kautsky at the height of this, excuse me, citing Trotsky at the height of the civil war. Um, and, but I do think that it's a post ironic thing. It has this wink and a nudge. Hey, maybe Trotsky wasn't wrong. You know, <laughs> like, I think he means that. I think, um, you know, like if if you've ever thought about what abolition of the police would mean right for one minute you know you kind of realize it would have to mean something like universal conscription into a self-defense force you know that isn't a special body hovering above the proletariat ready to crush it or the general population like it would so you know this is built in (laughs) 
I think he means it. Like he doesn't mean join the army. I okay. I want I want to read it on its face value. So I'm going to read it on its face value because it's a thousand times more interesting when you read it on its face rat value rather than reading it in the sort of tongue-in-cheek irony way or or even you know just a passive a passive stroll through utopianism utopian fiction as a genre uh i i believe some level civic republicanism is something that is not only needed but is something that people genuinely yearn for and you know, the military is one of the last bastions of it. Like, I was talking to a friend who, like, joined the Navy, like, a while back, and basically, uh, one of the f- he was like, yeah, the pay sucks, and generally, you know, it, it's kind of harsh, in general. Like, he, he had some issues, and he ended up getting kicked out. Uh, not not because he was I, I, okay. I shouldn't go into details, but basically, he was like one of the few good things about it is the sense of community. You know, it's one of those. It's the sense of community and like that you get from it. You get this sense of community from like having this sh- shared collective experience. This sort of kind of disciplined regiment, but it's ultimately something that you share with your peers and that sense of unity is something that is generally not something not that we don't have we don't have meaningful connections to other people through something like a collective goal we don't have things like that we're adrift we we're told that oh yeah you know you have to go along and like find your own career path and do x y and z you know to be successful in society and there's just there there's not really much of a point of it it's 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 freedom that's like too free in a sense that it denies any kind of like collective aspiration and it ultimately leaves you unfree it ultimately leaves you in you know just a miserated position where you're just working all the time and you're working towards no particular goal and whatsoever and you feel no sense of connection to the people around you and you're just you know it's a feeling of deep alienation and constant work so it, it it's it's the worst of it's the worst of all possible possible worlds really in all honesty it's so uh, it, it well, it, it reminds me of the double freedom in Marx, right? Because I, I don't think it's... I would disgrace the worst of all worlds, but I know exactly why you'd say that. It's because the pain of the social abandonment is, like, unreal. And it's kind of like... That that, 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 that that this is experienced by so many people, you know, in a society with so many resources, is just historically unprecedented. Like, it's really bizarre and it's not something that humans are, are like well adapted for you know at least naturally you know like it's not what we're evolved for like and it it takes our minds like a lot of pain to process it like that's where the primos get a check check box like <laughs> something wrong with this like, yeah it's 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 fundamentally the pain that was felt by like people in like the eastern Bloc in rush 
in Russia with the disillusionment of the Soviet Union. Like, often people will just sort of simply dismiss, like, the nostalgia that a lot of people in the Eastern Bloc and and the Soviet Union have towards it as simply, you know, nationalism, which in part it is, but at the same time, they talk of, like, having, like, national ideas of relative equality and that sort of thing, and having, like, housing and food, and, you know, knowing that they were working towards a long-term goal. It's not... It... While at the same time, there's obviously that grimming nationalism that was, you know, slowly eating at the Soviet Union and eating at, like, all these Eastern Bloc nations towards the end of its existence, there was something fundamentally there in terms of, like, the relations that they had towards society and a fundamental unity of peoples. It... it, that's why I don't necessarily think the idea of having universal conscription is necessarily bad or something that we should look upon as, you know, just simply a relic of, like, a sort of civic republicanism that was common in, social, in like, communism before it, you know, became sour in the form of, like, Stalinist nationalism or whatever. It... It's something that is fundamental for society to even function. It is, and is something that is missing within modern capitalism. And it, it only exists in the form of the military. And even in the military, it's rotting. You know, Jameson talks about it. Talks about renation. Talks about nationalizing the military as, uh, you know baffling as that might seem on its face because you know the u.s military is a brand on its face you know a part of the government but at the same time so much of it is in the hands of like private organizations like you know blackwater and so much of it is delegated to these private organizations that just generally are not held accountable and you know right well and like it it becomes like the the army becomes like a a explicitly political organization in the sense that you know the state basically has it and the and the actors within the the state that want you know want to continue this empire basically will direct the military to you know do imperialism more or less and then the population will self-select and the people who support those kind of policies will join and go do it um or people who are just kind of apolitical will join and then just kind of internalize those values because they're in the process of doing it. Um, and then, right? So there's like a certain set. And so it will tend to skew towards people who are kind of like on board essentially with American imperialism or just, you know, if hate Arabs or whatever. As opposed to being like something like that's actually representative of the opinions of the population, right? Kind of works the same way with like with voting. We're, the candidates that are put on offer exist on like this narrow band and spectrum and so you know the people who agree with that will go and vote and then most people won't vote (laughs) right i mean yeah it's just like there's something actually kind of oddly beautiful in imagining like what if this like hulking massive like horrific machinery of the military industrial complex was not focused like on the you know, was not focused on, like, you know, bombing brown people. It was 
what if it was like focused on like combating climate change what if we could all be a part of this thing you know that that's basically glorified what if people thought of like themselves uh what if everyone could be like a soldier in like this army to stop climate change and what if people got you know the same sort of religious zeal that they do about like the troops as they do about the rest of society in the whole and generally doing good things that are ultimately necessary for survival like Another good point that he hits on is he basically talks about how the Constitution is. We just got to chuck that out. Like, that's gone. Um, yeah. Well, how well co- like how constitutions in general are uh, are are a part of the counter revolution, like inherently. Like, yeah, and he goes through these theories yeah. he has about like federalism, yeah. where like federalism is like intrinsic. But the, the like, thing about it is that I don't, like, I don't, the critique of federalism is something that from Marx and Engels, and their uh, in the First International and their debates with Bakunin. And um, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that that's like that has a you know classic Marxian uh, legacy, and uh, I don't know, I don't know, like I I don't think that this is like an obsolete logic totally. I I mm-hmm. keep wanting to make the comparison to Starfleet, but in Starfleet, you know, in fucking Star Trek, like not everybody joins, you know, like um, right. Whereas like here at the universality is the whole point i also i also like reading it at face value i like the idea of combining this sort of like uh civic republican impulse this desire for a universal army with the kind of uh, uh sort of psych psychoanalytic uh acknowledgement of desires of like sort of like desire uh desire i think I think I, I can't the psychoanalysis. Well, yeah, well, artist. he basically turns to Lacan to try and explain like the process of like envy and how it's like he basically building off. Of, so I guess like for Lacan, the way the way he reads Lacan at least, um, desire is intrinsically social. And this actually is true. Like for Lacan, like desire is always the desire of the other, right? And so like the structure of desire is always based on this sort of big other. Um, what you think basically other people want or whatever or want for for you or and shit like that and so he basically talks about the way how he talks about like the okay i'll just read this real quick um this is the moment to enunciate several laconian concepts which seem useful in any contemporary political analysis they are one the structural force of gravity of the other uh two the theft of enjoyment of jouissance and three the permanence uh of social antagonism on the individual level or perhaps it would be better to say the disappearance of any concept of normality, the view of society as an ir- ineradicable collection of neurotics. Um, and so, like, yeah, basically, because, yeah, for Lacan, there's no kind of fixing neurosis. Like, neurosis is just kind of constitutive of, like, you know, a, actually, like, a mostly functional person. Because if you're not neurotic, you're schizo or you're, like, a sadist. Yeah. Um, or you're, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and yeah, so he basically talks about how there can always be this perception, no matter what, like the social arrangements that like some other group over there is like, they're getting the real enjoyment and I'm getting screwed somehow. And this can like foster like broader resentments, which, you know, could lead to like conflicts over resources and shit like that. I think that's basically what he's getting at. Um, 
and he doesn't really seem he doesn't really seem to find a way out of that particular problem. Like like the best thing the best thing that he really gets to is he goes back to Foyer and the way that Foyer tried to like break like different dispositions down into types and try to like f- essentially figure out how how you could arrange society such that like the th- the things that maybe seem like destructive or antisocial on people could actually be like fit slotted in or, or rerouted in a way that you know is becomes is like social and productive for society as a whole right and so he gets to this idea of i'm going to try to see the exact word you can use but basically do that somehow with like computers and create like this <laughs> yeah let me see if i can find the so, exact word he so used. It's, it's tinder basically <laughs> um i don't know if that's it it's exactly. it's it's like the administrative functions of the state well, the administrative functions that are supposed to replace the state are essentially psychoanalytic, like, therapy and, like, the Fournier-style, like, sort of operation, sy- operation system that, you know, d- finds a way to deal with people's pathologies and channel them towards social ends. Yeah, he calls it... He calls it the psychoanalytic placement bureau. Yeah, right. Uh, right. Uh, he goes. That it, 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 <laughs> yeah, he says it well in conjunction with unimaginably complex computer systems. This is maybe the most tongue-in-cheek section I think. Uh, handle and or- organize all forms of employment as well as all manner of personal and collective therapies, mediating between the individual and the collective. You may insert innumerable familiar structures and groups within them. The new institution will c- focus will combine the functions of a union and a hospital of an employment office and a court a market research agency a polling bureau and a social welfare center uh, presumably all that is left of the police as an institution will be eventually absorbed into this central agency which will eventually replace the government and political structures uh, equally the state but thereby withering away into some enormous group therapy <laughs> yeah I, yeah i mean that's like that's easily the most insane thing in here yeah i mean I kind of like the idea, though, like, you know, ch- channeling, like, sort of anti- what is seemingly antisocial tendencies into, or, or taking, like, psychoanalysis and putting it at, like, the basis of, of a new society for, I think, like, um, yeah, it's like, it's Dexterization, right? It's like Dexter is like a serial killer, but what if you only killed bad people? Right, take the most antisocial thing you can think of, and then put it, put it into the way that's useful for society. All right. I mean, I don't. I, I, I feel like a lot, a lot of incelism, like just you know, incels in general, could like benefit from like a combination of between like, sort of like a society that has civic republicanism at at like its base and just you know you have duties to society but at the same time you know all the 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 sort of like sexual pathologies are channeled towards you know society as a whole so you have like the sort of sexual desires that are generally antisocial within men channeled towards you know like collective orgies that sort of thing fun things well, I'm gonna well, I'm gonna give the trad I'm gonna, I'm gonna give know. the trad cath answer on this one and say that actually it's kind of a result of like the collapse of the nuclear family. Because oh it used to be, if you had like an incel fail son, you'd have a dad who would beat him up and make him join the military, and then he would jo- join the military and either get killed in some third world hellhole or discover he's gay, 
And then, like, that basically solved the whole problem, right? That's exactly like, the future that we're talking about here. No, yeah, I mean, this, yeah, this is, and that's that's why it could work, because it brings everybody around, like, the people who worship the troops. You think the troops are, are like, great and the perfect people? What if everyone was a troop? <laughs> And then you, and then you basically well, get like you know you know the, what like that's the appeal of this like if I was going to do you know Marxist Lincolnism and and do Repub- Republican Communists of America you know mm-hmm. like this would be front of my platform yeah you know what I mean I think that's like the real utility of this is it is like what the, if the, what if we all got a discount at GameStop yeah think about it <laughs> you ever think of that I'm I'm, t- I'm talking to you about utopias. No, but um, I I I also like the um personality type uh sorting hat thing. You know, I think that it's kind of nice, like what he's talking about, and uh, that's the most interesting thing about Fourier and his like experiments. Is you know, it's the same thing that occurs to anyone that's ever been to you know into like BDSM or something. It's like oh, these people are fucked up in ways that can work for each other. Interesting, like um. But, but the thing is, and you have to figure out how to classify people, you know. And I've never seen a system like that that's ever been remotely accurate. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, oh, what? you're not impressed by the Myers Briggs? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. Grad school astrology. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, I I don't know. But there's also an undercurrent to this that you know what? I'm gonna own. I'm not gonna dismiss it. Um, I think you could make an equally good case in Lacanian terms for for this is that there's um there's a serious dark side to basing your society on like a uh, people classification and manipulating them into the right you know mm-hmm. shapes like I I know what he's getting at he wants you know social harmony but what he's actually describing and admittedly would not really go there <laughs> it would be yeah well he hedges his bets too because he yeah. talks about how there's always going to be some degree of like antagonism well, and there's people are going to have bar fights people well, are going to hit their kids and shit you know collective like resentments gonna... will be attenuated and be channeled into individual resentments <laughs> like it right. will actually like kind of intensify resentments. <laughs> On, but on an, on an interpersonal level, you know, so there's a kind of niche and beauty there, I suppose, where we're t- casting off all the slave morality and it's just you and me like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I don't know whether I, like I can see what pisses Rosa off about this essay. Like he's po- positing this and he and I think he's true about I think he's being honest about that. He thinks there's something important dual power institution needs to be there and he does not talk at all about the reskilling of self-defense and how that's important for abolition of state but that's like in the background as a basic marxist Mm -hmm. point um he just does a sort of for a critical theorist this is inexcusable he doesn't really address you know like militarism and patriarchy properly just says well feminists would say it's not just humans it's just like males you know whatever like uh yeah, he kind of he kind of brushes a lot of that off he, like which is preposterous because all right let's talk about you know science man let's talk about lacan what the fuck you're just gonna like gloss over human nature because it's not like you know because it's you know uh, i don't get i don't know like that's just from another world to me that's that's where like ineliminably this guy sees the world as a bunch of books if you do that shit 
Like, you can't just pick up the Lacan book and ignore the Darwin book. It just doesn't work that way. Like, what, what, what do you mean by that? Could you unpack that a little bit? Like, a lot of the things towards aggression um, that he's saying are just sort of, you know, ideological and don't exist in humans exist in humans. <laughs> what? Mm-hmm. What is that? Like, don't give me that shit. <laughs> like... Well, I thought I thought his stuff about that was his was his like idea that I I thought he was I thought he was saying that people like have people especially like leftists and stuff have like negative images of the army because of their association of it with like you know like Punisher skull like iconography and like hyper masculinity and shit and his point was like you can you can you can have an army that isn't like you know like the Vietnamese uh, the Vietnamese peasant army you know there's women and men and it was you know you know yeah, what I'm saying yeah, like yeah. okay like. Yeah, he doesn't really get into that because it's uh, the whole thing about like reskilling self-defense and the hardening process of what it would be to, you know, defend yourself. Like he he gets into it a little bit about how, you know, labor organizers when sent to the army for a year became steeled and hardened and throbbing or whatever. And like, you know, like, you know, it just made them better at everything. Um well, I mean, I mean, I society is still good. I mean, people you people do need like some kind of discipline <laughs> i mean I'm, no. I'm sorry to say no no, no. Like, like, I, I i don't like fundamentally disagree with that like but okay you know <laughs> like that's that's fine like it's um it's a question of how do you actually institute discipline in a higher form of freedom you know like because that's what people are always getting at mm-hmm Okay, so I mean, in the in the far like dreams of like you know Star Trek replicator society, you've basically yeah you've basically eliminated all need. But there's going to be a transitional period, especially if we continue to like tank the environment, where there is still going to be like you know a there you're you're still in the realm of necessity, you're not in the realm of freedom, right? And so you have to basically find a way to make that necessity felt amongst as broad a section of the population as possible and then have them basically working towards addressing the pro you see what i'm saying oh like Like the 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 thing about this is that like i don't really don't really object to like the fundamental like republican principle at work here it's just Mm -hmm. um i don't want to say it's obsolete it's just hard to see how to implement that like and it's right. something that he d- does not even bother to struggle with and it's really relevant to us because of the way that in the sort of McNair you know view of things like instead of the, like a traditional idea of dictatorship of the proletariat or workers government McNair puts in the democratic republic as the as a solution and actually Jameson makes the same move he says we shouldn't talk about dictatorship of the proletariat anymore um, we should, you know, be going for this, this well, universal yeah, he army. He doesn't think there's a proletariat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, demo- oh, the Democratic Republic would essentially just be the dictatorship of the proletariat. That's, that's essentially the thing. Like, the whole point of, like, the civic republicanism is not that it simply disciplines the citizen population, but that it raises them to a point where they are ultimately a part of the decision making progress and by being disciplined they take up the responsibilities fundamentally there's it's a self-disciplining prog uh process overall it's 
its citizens engaging in a process of self-uplifting. I, I believe. I, I know that sounds vaguely Jordan Peterson-esque, but, y- you know... Well, it's complicated, because it's, you know, it's a self-uplifting that is sometimes executed by others, you know? Like, and, um... And so, yeah, it's a, it's an uplifting, but it, it, the hope would be it would be like a consensual, like, sort of, you know, egalitarian, mu- you know, mutually, like, helping each other explore life or whatever, man, uh, and develop a better character and, you know, develop towards fucking your highest, like, potential, like, fucking Universal Starfleet. No, I get it. Like, no, what, like, in the broadest strokes, what he's saying is perfectly like it you know is is perfectly like on paper right it's just like the reason why it comes off like such a troll proposal is that it just doesn't like fit into our reality part of it is the fact that you can't imagine who would carry this out you know well here i I mean the problem is is that he justifies the arm i'm okay so he, he at least the way he frames it, where he almost he see, almost seems to be like the army is the thing. Like this is the last thing that can be like, honestly, it, from a realistic standpoint, the unions or anything else could just as realistically act as like the universe. You know what I'm saying? I think so, I think it would be way better to to think of like it as like a sort of I don't want to say labor army, but like a you know a jobs corps of some kind of thing, and that you know. Defense, right? Is but like an essential. Part but why the aren't like it could be the it could be the navy. Like we could we could, we could, we could or we could expand the chair force. You know what I mean? Like he, like he he. Yeah, we could just like everyone everyone who uses the computers on the air. Like, <laughs> the chair force. <laughs> but he, he almost frames it like it's a realistic thing when clearly it isn't. Right. Right. Maybe because yeah. yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and, yeah. and this uh, th- this itches to me in a way that maybe reading like the speculative stuff of like yeah like again like Hawkshot or somebody else doesn't right. Um, say more about that well no I, I mean I mean it's interesting because like you know again like cockshot and control like their thing is like speculative utopian like planning right um, and but the way they and they're even seem to be more sanguine about its actual prospects because they develop like actual formulas for how they think it could work right like literally like here's how you would process this information but I guess it didn't bother me in the same way. I mean, because I guess because he picks the army specifically as a thing, it gives us the sense that he knows it's not really realistic. But he, but let's like, why the army then specifically? Whereas I guess like Cockshot and Cottrell stuff is a little more vague and could be almost applied anywhere. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? So I guess that's why the I I that. Was it this this that little bit was itchy to me in the way that it wasn't in other like speculative utopian stuff that I've read? Yeah, the the thing is like with cockshot in that it it's actually meant to be applied. It's not just speculative utopianism. It's literally just policy. Yeah, you yeah you sense their sincerity uh, in a way that you it's we're, we've been we spent a significant portion of this episode debating whether how to what extent this is sincere or how this is sincere uh, with with Paul Cockshot and Contrell like they are 100 you feel like they're 100 they're just 100% they're all in you know they're publishing this on their own dime they they really they actually believe this could work and yeah there's no doubt so much so that we that we're almost we almost kind of approach it semi ironically kind of making mm-hmm. fun of them you yeah know? 
I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that, like, you know, Fourier or like like Robert Owen, you know, or the like it's one of the utopians. I can't remember. Like a utopian socialist, you imagine that they've like sent their book on socialism to their local labor like MP. <laughs> like, oh, uh, really? We know, oh, sir. Yeah. We figured it out. I I never quite read those letters about the utopians, so I didn't realize I'm doing historical reenactment right now. But please read my proposal, yeah. sir. Like, yeah. yeah. And and yeah, ha ha, lol, they actually think they can change the world, right? Like, right. but, you know, it has to be built into the way that we think about those things, especially as Marxists, because Marxists are the people snarking at utopians. They always have been. It's a fundamental distinction between the two, and it doesn't serve us well anymore when utopian socialism is under, like, a ideological jackboot to you know piss all over it right so there's probably a lot of sense to what he's saying about rehabilitating you know utopian thinking in this complex way but um this is a goddamn strange way to do it yeah i uh, the thing is though like uh it's not the fundamental like Marx doesn't simply just criticize Owen or, like, Fournier or any of those just simply to criticize them. It's a constructive criticism. What makes them utopian is not necessarily the visions that they have for a new society. It's the fact that they didn't take into consideration how do you get to this sort of... How do you get there? How do you build this movement? Who, who fundamentally, like, creates who's fundamentally going to create this society how you know it, it, it that's what makes them utopian and it's not necessarily oh they're it, it's not necessarily because you know their visions are particularly bad or anything like that and i i think fundamental uh i've been reading um um marxist in, inferno but basically like a good portion of what he argues is that Marx Marx is not fundamentally rejecting the utopian tradition so much as he's building utopian tradition or the traditions of his opponents so much as he's building upon it through constructive criticism ultimately uh, you know it, it's not necessarily that he rejects Owen per se but ultimately he finds there's something lacking because ultimately Owen didn't really think about I mean Owen's probably actually the more the more uh, scientific of the utopian socialists because he did like process a lot of different things he did figure out that it was the working class that would bring about socialism and he did have like a, a concept of you know labor you know, it's just labor theory of value thing going on and you know that's why like a lot of the working class in Britain uh, or working class radicals in Britain were initially Owenites you know that sort of thing but like overall like you didn't have a you didn't have like a conception of the dictatorship of the proletariat or some kind of transitionary stage into it and you know this, this ultimately like he, he, he falls back and twer towards the negative side of utopianism which is not having a way to reach utopia that's realistic and it's just 
you know. Well, well, I mean, here's the thing, though, right? So I think the more obvious, like, Occam's razor answer about why why dystopias proliferate and utopias are underrepresented in... And, you know, what's interesting. This is actually a problem that there was a movie that came out a few years ago tried to deal with. Um, there's a movie Tomorrowland uh, by Brad Bird. And the whole... The entire movie is basically them going, like why don't we imagine a world like Tomorrowland anymore? And like, well, why don't we just fix it? Why don't we fix the problems? Why, the whole conclusion of the movie is like, why don't we fix the problems and just stop being so negative? And it somehow manages, it tries to talk about utopia while being completely apolitical, right? And the, as a result, as a consequence, the movie sucks ass. Um, and yeah, it's like, there, like even like movies that are made to try and talk about utopia end up just talking about why we can't imagine utopia. <laughs> Right, um, and the I mean the, the Occam's Razor simple answer to all this is is that it's easier again it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism in terms of like immediate prospects. And Jameson is that guy. He's the it's it's the easier to imagine the end of the world than imagine the end of capitalism. Um, and he recognizes that, but you know, late in life, he did decide to just well, it's hard to imagine the way forward but i'm just gonna do it anyway and see what happens right he basically took that step so uh yeah i guess it's never too late you know i mean i guess if you just interpret it as you know on on face value but at the same time there's the lingering sensation that there's not there's something more to it that kind of undermines that i i don't i don't it's frustrating. It's just frustrating. I just, yeah, yeah. <sighs> I mean, as far as you know, critical theory goes, like late, late critical theory, you might say, like it was, I guess, a bit surprising that this comes from the. Uh, it it feels like it's from like an earlier period, but it was all. It's also hitting at. You know, something that came up in the wild in, uh, you know, the debates around Neo-Kaltskyism and whatever. Like, and so there seems to be enough, like, resonance in it to be like a, I I don't know, it's like an interesting reading. I enjoyed reading it and enjoyed is the word. It was, you know, kind of, it was kind of fun, you know, like it was, um, but yeah, I suppose like in terms of, shit especially when i was like developing you know my like sort of preferences as like how i think people should be going about shit like i was much harder on things like this and i had reactions much more like roses we're we're the real troops if you you think about it say something or don't you jack that's the lesson of this piece um (laughs) and um i feel like let i feel like a little less like that now because like i sort of know what to expect with critical (laughs) theory most of the time um, all right, is that uh, is that an ep- I mean, there, there's there's a lot of shit we could bite. Like he goes off on all these tangents that that we get that we could take up here, but that that is kind of part of the problem. Like I remember that one point where he's like, he's like, well, every state's a failed state, man. States don't work anymore. Dictatorships don't work anymore. And it's like, okay, that's interesting, but what do you mean? Like, what does that even mean? Right? And there's a lot. There's a lot of moments in that where he just has throws out like this kind of offhand assertion, and it never really follows up on it. That even at times seems to contradict like his own analysis, and you're just kind of like, what? Well, 
he seems like a poly stylist. He's like the Mr. Bungle of critical theory mm. where he's like weaving in and out of this like Hegelian and then kind of structuralist stuff. Yeah. You know, th- those things are usually, usually at odds with each other. He kind of just dips in and out of them. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that is what's really interesting about him. Yeah. There is. Cause again, yeah, he seems, he seems kind of torn between those two poles. Right. And it's like, he, he's basically like almost like a, like a postmodernist who has, he, he's almost a Marxist, almost more of a sense of suspicion. Um, and there, there's like, there's this res, there's this residue of like Marxism in, in his outlook that I guess keeps it grounded to a certain extent, but he still kind of like buys into the whole kind of like, critical theory literary theory milieu that he works in i don't know yeah I, i'd have to read more of his work to really actually make a kind of judgment like that but that's just kind of the impression mm-hmm. i get reading this i'm this sure he is, does and does not believe in it this is why liter- literary theory is fucking trash i hate this shit <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't it's fucking Marxism doesn't belong in the literary department. It doesn't belong in any kind of fucking humanities I mean, department, except maybe history. It's just it, it wasn't supposed to happen like this. We were supposed to get the, mm. the dictatorship of the proletariat. We're supposed to get, you know, Soviet culture, and then Marxism would filter into all those departments. You know, <laughs> we don't get like we don't get the defeat of the workers' movement in the 20th century and like high capitalism and you know late capitalism. And then that's where Mar- Marxism ends up in that department. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If anything, if anything, all the scientists should be Marx. <laughs> if anything, all the Marxists should be, uh, all the scientists should be Marxists and vice versa. In all honesty, um, I, I feel like, you know, Bordiga, the Bordiga, can I say it was fu- I can link this to Bordiga or whatever. It, I mean, if you can, it, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't fucking know. I don't even fucking just, fuck this shit. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They should all be sci- We should all be scientists, you know, to a certain degree. Marxism is it's, it's, Marxism is a science of a sort. I, I don't know what, but you know, it, it's. It's not this. It's not this. Yeah, this ain't it, Chief. Yeah, this ain't <laughs> it, Chief. Like, uh, actually, I, I mean, I, I actually enjoyed reading this for the most part. Um, like, yeah. Like, there, again, like, there's there's a lot of stuff. I'm, if I'd taken notes, I'd probably got to pull a few more things to, uh, to like, pick apart here or to, like, look at. But, yeah, you know, like, I'm, I'm glad we read Jig Jameson. It's, it, it's been on my list yeah, of things too. to do for a long time. I want to look at that other article on Libcom. Um, just about the politics of utopia generally. It actually seems a little more lucid than this, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, is there anything else? Anything else to say here? Or are we? Uh, are we yeah, I mean, as um, like, yeah. At one point, he basically says like the failure of the Soviet Union wasn't the failure of socialism, but the failure of federalism. Like, and, <laughs> yeah, like there, there's, just, there's a lot of really interesting, you know, things to pull on. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, as far as you know, critical theory goes like late late critical theory you might say like it was i guess a bit surprising that this comes from the uh it it feels like it's from like an earlier period but it was all it's also hitting at you know something that came up in the wild in uh you know the debates around neo-kautskyism and whatever 
Like, and so there seems to be enough like resonance in it to be like a, I, I don't know. It's like an interesting reading. I enjoyed reading it and enjoyed is the word. It was, you know, kind of, it was kind of fun, you know, like it was, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I suppose like in terms of, shit especially when i was like developing you know my like sort of preferences as like how i think people should be going about shit like i was much harder on things like this and i had reactions much more like roses where it's like fucking you know say something or don't you jackass um mm-hmm. <laughs> and um i feel yeah, like yeah. Le- i feel like a little less like that now because like i s- sort of know what to expect with critical theory most of the time Right. Yeah. Um, you. I, I went in the same thing. Like I went into this with like different expectations. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Definitely. And so it was. You know. Like seeing the spoken version of it definitely gave me a lot more waka waka than I would have expected just reading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I. I don't. The thing is, I just I just want someone to unironically propose red starship troopers at this point. I I just want someone to do it. <laughs> just fucking unironically, just do well, it because be literally the, be, be anything. the change you want to see in the world. Yeah, literally, yeah, literally anything. Babe, red guard Chicago. Huh? Red guard Chicago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just literally anything would be better than this at this point. I'm saying that about, you know, this dangling old society. You know what I'm saying? I think I... That's it for this week. I think we'll manage to get this one out. At least to Patreon subscribers. Just in time for the 4th of July. Uh, so how was your How was your holiday? Did you uh, shoot off any fireworks? Go to a barbecue? I know if you're like a far leftist or a communist or whatever, you always feel a little weird about the 4th of July. It's like if you do something, like you probably have some fun, but a part of you feels weird about it. If you don't do anything, you feel like a loser. (laughs) So you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um... Recently, I don't know if any of you saw the kerfluffle, we got kicked off iTunes. Um, it turns out it was just because we have, like, swears in some of our episode, episode descriptions, and they weren't happy with that, so we'll probably be back on soon. A part of me was hoping that it would be for political reasons, just so I could introduce every episode, like, this is Swampside Chats only communist podcast too hot for iTunes but now we'll pro- it's, it's it was more banal than that so we'll be back on there shortly sorry for the delay alright if you want to get hold of us uh, you can contact us on social media or swampsidechats at gmail.com if you want to support us, you can subscribe to our Patreon or uh, send us some money to PayPal, swampsidechats at gmail.com. Uh, I was going to say leave us a good review on iTunes like I usually do, but can't really do that right now. 
And honestly, if our position on there is that precarious, I'm not giving them any more free advertising on this thing. I don't think so. Uh, so, you know, just tell your friends or something. I don't know. Maybe uh, retweet our tweets. Some shit like that. I don't know. All right. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.